0: So there's going to be a quick fire round where we're going to try to answer these questions in a very shallow, I don't want to call it shallow, um, a precise way and a short way where it's going to be a minute or two to take them. Um, And then if you have follow-up questions, you can ask us after service. And then there's the second one is going to be a theological question. Um, So the questions are more theological in nature. So we'll we'll address those, and there are some questions that are practical. So those are the three categories, kind of give you an idea of what we're going to try to answer. Um, so with that being said, here's the first question in the quick fire round. Um, by the way, do you have your, your mic on? Just a button on it. Um, also, th- just to kind of give you an an, uh, an, uh, an idea, this is also being recorded and also be available on our podcast as well. So if you want to go back and say, I, I can't remember how this question was answered, you can go back and listen to it. Um, first question. What makes the nature of Jesus the same or different as the other sons of God? I think the question is saying, Us being the children of God, uh, uh, me being the son of God by. What is the similarities that Jesus has in his nature, and what are some of the differences? Um, You want to start it off. Sure. Um, uh, Basically, uh, thank you. Um,
1: I think Manny will be able to cover um, majority of. Uh, the comprehensive answer to the question. But basically the first thing that we go into is like, uh, Jesus Christ has been the child of God, the son of God from eternity past, as John 1.1 1, 1 tells us. He is God. Um, he is not physical. He's a spiritual, since he's spirit, since he's God. Therefore, he came into being in a body in time that's he did that for a purpose so that he may sympathize with us that he may die for us and he may be our like depicted as our brother right that we may have union with him that he may be sacrificed on our behalf so like our similarities are in that that what he has done purposefully what he has done for us makes him similar to us in the sense that he understands the temptations that we go through since he has been tempted but never sinned right? Um, he understands the struggles of being in the body. And he is not just God in heaven, but the God who came down in flesh. But our similarities kind of end there. Um, even in the body, he didn't sin. So we don't even know what that means. Uh, because none of us are like that. But he is God above all things. He knows all things. And um, he is the creator of all things. He sustains everything. So we are nothing like that. Um, so that's that's what I wanna say. Yeah. yeah.
0: Just to kind of go off of what he said. Uh, ultimately, what he's saying is we are similar in as much as we are human. So, and as much as Jesus was human, that he did have a human body, like you have a human body and I have a human body. Uh, he did grow physically and also intellectually as Luke 2 tells us, uh, just like we are doing because we weren't the same size when we were born and neither was Jesus. So we have those similarities in his human attributes. Um, but like I says, that's, what it, that's where it ends. The best way to think about this, um, Jesus' sonship to God is different than ours. Because our sonship to God is by adoption. We have been adopted as children of God, but Jesus is the Son of God by nature. It's um, an imperfect illustration, and this is where words can't explain it and it's incomprehensible. Um, think of an analogy of an adopted child which a family would bring into. Their own, or where the mother and father would bring an adopted child. They call him their son. He is adopted. There is, there's. He'll take the benefit of every aspect of family uh, life, even if he or she is adopted. But they would not have the same DNA as the father and the mother. Um, so again, it's imperfect in the sense that we can't take that and apply it to the incomprehensible and the infinite nature of the divine being of Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Spirit. We can't apply that to that, but think of it that way so you can have a grid to think of the differences. We are sons and daughters by adoption. Jesus is the Son of God by nature. He is the same substance of God the Father. Um, You and I aren't. So that would be the quickest answer to give. Uh, The second question is, um, as a young teenager, I appreciate this question by the way. Um, If I like someone, should I date? To which I would answer, I appreciate the honesty um, and the candidness of the question, whoever it is that asked. I would ask whoever I asked, or the way to think of it: What do you mean, like somebody? What does it mean to like somebody, and what does it mean to date? I want to get the definition of that, and I want to—I want us to work through that. And I think I know the question. By like, I mean I think, and this is obvious to most of us. Um, what this question is asking: If I am attracted to somebody then the dating would be, should I hang out with them more and get to know them more? I think that's the framework of that question, if we really break it down to that. to um, so that question I would answer, what is your attraction? I would ask you to, to search your heart and say, is your attraction just on a surface level? Is it just looks? Um, Or is it something deeper? Now, does the Bible say uh, the proper dating age is 16 or 18 or 21? No, it doesn't. So I can't necessarily give you a a verse in the Bible to say, yes, you should date, or no, you shouldn't date. This is a wisdom call, a biblical wisdom call, um, which would have you ask that question. The Bible does talk about male and female relationships, but when it talks about it, it talks about it in terms of marriage. The most comprehensive, uh, some, I wouldn't call it the most comprehensive, but the the closest to this question that the Bible addresses would be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul is telling um, the believers in, in Corinth. What should you do about this? Should you be married? Should you be stay? Should you stay single? Um, what if you are burning with passion? What should you do? He says you should get married. So, as a young teenager, are you going to get married? The question is no. Um, at least as a teenager, you won't be. If you're honest, the law wouldn't even. So what you're, in essence, asking about is what kind of relationship should I cultivate with a person of the opposite sex uh, to which I have an attraction to? So search your heart. Um, don't put any worldly labels to it. This is why I say, what do mean, like? Because it's not a biblical term or an idea or a principle the Bible teaches about liking one another. The Bible teaches us to love one another right, um, as brothers and sisters to begin with. Um, those of us who, who are married, and when we go into our vows, we do understand that my wife, b- before she was my wife, before she is my wife, she is my sister in Christ, right? And God could attest to this um, as well. I think it was actually in your vow mm-hmm. um, that at, at your wedding, Um, I was there and I heard it and I was just like, it it was such a fresh thing to hear someone say that. So you are having that relationship anyways with someone that is in church. You are cultivating that brother and sisterly love with one another anyways. Why bring a worldly principle of liking and dating that comes with a worldly expectation of, Holding hands, kissing, how far do we go? Uh, Maybe it's just holding one finger. Maybe it's the whole palm. Uh, Maybe it's just uh, closed lips. Uh, You know, it's like if it doesn't get there, why even give yourself the opportunity to get there Um, by adding on to worldly principles to the purity of the brotherly and sisterly affection in Christ that we may have. So within that framework, Paul says you are free uh, in in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. So you are are free to do whatever within that framework, however, of brotherly and sisterly love, and you just so happen to be interested in the same thing. Oh, I like soccer, so so does she. Oh, I like science, so does she. Oh, we can talk about science all the time and how God has given us science together, and we wanna spend more time together as long as it's within the framework of that, without adding this language of liking and dating, then the Bible gives you liberty to um, to cultivate those relationships. Do mm-hmm. You wanna add anything to that?
1: I, I don't have anything to add, except to say like practically, there might be things that could arise when this topic is raised. Um, I think what you described right now is like the freedom that we have in Christ and the quality of relationship that we have in Christ that you cannot get if you follow the path of the world uh, as it has been described. As soon as you step out of what is written for us, you get a lot of confusion coming in. And I just want to caution, I want you to not overestimate yourself and your ability to resolve Issues that will arise and also your self control, right? I don't want you to expect you can expose yourself to this kind of situation that we can't even resolve biblically and then you'll do fine. You're not going to do fine. I can promise you this. Nobody did fine before you. Nobody will do fine ever because we are weak. Uh, We have, we as humans, if we do not have the power of God revealing on how to behave wisely, we have no power to resolve things like this. So this is a complex issue. And you guys ask us, me and Manny, because you're trying to find out what is the biblical wisdom that I need to navigate this? This is the biblical wisdom, right? Um, But then, yeah, that's it, yeah.
0: And we are here. That's why the Lord really places us here. And not only us, but um, other faithful, trustworthy, mature believers in your life, um, most likely your parents. And I know this is a touchy-feely thing, especially with our culture, and this is not what we're gonna bring to our parents because they're gonna flip out and say, get out of my house, what are you talking about? And shut the door at you. But even even if it gets to that, um, this is why the church exists. This is what we have there. And this is a case-by-case thing. We can talk through these things. And the grace of God and, uh, and his mercy is abundant. So if you have done it and if you've been burnt by the fact that you have not had that self-control, um, it's not game over for you. I, I want you to think about these things, especially when we get to the uh, practical ones later on. Uh, moving on. Is it okay to want to make a lot of money? Um, I think the heart of the question is I I want to be rich. Is it okay for me to be rich? Is God going to send me to hell for being rich? Um, So is it okay to make a lot of money? Yes and no is the short answer since we're doing a quick fire. Um, Yes, it's okay to make a lot of money so long as you are not serving money. This is what the Lord says in the um, in Matthew chapter six, um, right? And, and in the Sermon of the Mount, that you cannot serve two masters. You can either serve God or serve money. But He doesn't say it's a sin for you to say to um, to make a lot of money. When it becomes an idol, then we have a problem. When all you're concerned about is how you're going to make money because how much money is enough money what is a lot of money it's you ask you ask me I might tell you oh, a million bucks I, I would be okay with a million bucks and you go and ask Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or um, what's the guy from Tesla um, Elon Musk and they have hundreds of billions of dollars and they're still seeking for more um, so it, it is a heart matter. So in that case, no. If you're serving money, then it's not okay to make a lot of money or to want to make a lot of money. If you make it your idol. If, if money becomes something that you love, here's a, one misquoted verse. The love of money, oh, actually I gave you the right, <laughs> money is the root of all evils. That's the most misquoted Bible verse, one of the most misquoted Bible verses. What the Bible says is the love of money is the root of all evil, not money in itself, right? Because we see the ministry of Jesus was funded by money. Um, Job, the oldest book in the Bible, was rich. And Satan even uses that. and say, oh, see, and we know that God blessed them them with the money, with the richness, um, because that's what Satan comes up and tells God. see he's he only believes in you um, because he has money because you've given him money. So it's it's what you do with your money. Is money a tool or is money the center of your universe? Uh, so and as much as money makes, money takes the place of Christ in your life then it's not okay to make a lot of money but it, if you make enough money while Christ is still at the throne and again this is where that self-control and your our inability uh, you taste a little bit of money money has a way of of drawing you that way so it's it's one to depend on the grace and wisdom of God's word as well. So yes or no? Ali, you want to add anything to that? No, that's good. Um, here's another one. Is it is it okay for guys to have long hair in the in this day and age? Yikes, I just I'm glad I cut my hair when I did. I had a bun and everything, all of you. This is a really good one, right? Again, um, I believe that question rises out of um, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, right before Paul talks about uh, where we were, right before we picked up reading about the Lord's Supper. Um, He talks about how... Uh, it is shameful for men to have long hair. I believe that may be where it's coming from. Even na- even doesn't nature tell us that it is, it is shameful for men to have long hair? And this has been discussed very thoroughly by others. There are some online tools that I can guide you to. Um, what Paul was n- discussing in that sense um, in that passage um, was not the nuance of how long should your hair be? Because again, we can get into what is long hair? Is it an inch? Is my hair long? Or is Basu's hair supposed to be the, the standard? What is the standard of long hair? Or should I just shave it all bald? Oh no, there's, there's a new test. So we get into the nuances of that. We can't know for sure. What he's concerned about there is the covering of 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 the woman by a man and the covering of the man by christ and therefore what that represents is the representation of that so is it okay for a guy to have long hair um i can tell you from experience that it is probably the most inconvenient thing (laughs) for a guy to have long hair because it takes 30 minutes to to get it ready and stuff like that it is one of the best decisions that i've made i've pleaded with my wife to do so, practically speaking, um, even before I got my hair, um, that I can roll out of bed and just go now. Um, so from, that, from a practical way, I would say that. But again, that's not a moral issue. That's not a primary issue. Um, and the Bible doesn't necessarily say you must have short hair or else you're not a believer. Um, or you must have long hair for you to affirm your salvation. Um, So yeah, the answer is yes. Hmm. Uh, Okay. Uh, Two more on on this quick fire, which is not quick fire. Is every Old Testament law holy? You want to... Take that. You should start. Okay. So is every Old Testament law holy? And I think the the heart before this question is what about the laws, uh, the ceremonial laws? Um, So it is holy in as much as we can give the definition of holy. Um, To be holy is to be separate, to be set aside. So it is holy in as much as it separated the people of Israel from the pagan nations around them. So every law that was given to them was given in the heart of that. So for instance, most of us, is a famous one that most people use. Um, if you look on the tag of your shirt, you would see 20% cotton, 80% polyester, and 10% something else. I don't even know how something can be made with, over the math doesn't add up. I get it, but what I'm saying is um, they weren't to mix the fabric of their cloth and and what they wore. Um, that is to is that law holy? Is it inherently holy? Does that does what you wear make you righteous? No, it doesn't make you righteous in in, in the side of moral context of it. But it does set you apart from every other nation that is around you um, that is wearing polyester pants and cotton um, shirts, which they didn't wear pants and shirts then. Um, But in, in that way, it is holy. Every Old Testament law is holy in that way. Also, by the virtue of the lawgiver who gave the Old Testament law, God. Is God holy? Yes, he is. And therefore, by the virtue of God's holiness, the laws that he gives are holy, just simply and inherently. Um, So you can think of it from those two perspectives. Um, You want to add anything?
1: Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Um, So like, I think maybe since I'm a different person, maybe the direction from which I hear the question also might be different. Um, the one other thing that you might be asking with that question is, is the Old Testament law going to teach us anything? Does it have any value for our lives right now? Maybe the question attached to that. Uh, The moral law helps us a lot, right? Um, It's not that I'm not saying um, that's what we keep. That's what you got to follow. Go back to the Old Testament. That's not the point. The Old Testament law was still trying to reveal to us the holiness of God, who God is. In that sense, uh, you shall not murder, still applies. <laughs> if you do that, the government will show up, let alone God, right? Um, so it, it, our obedience to Christ now in the faith is not less than what's in the Ten Commandments, let's say, right? And the other things that inform us about the holiness of God and what, how a man is supposed to live, how a woman is supposed to live, minus what Manny just described what separated the people of israel as a nation no longer applies to the church because we're not one nation we we come from all the nations um but again this is not a simple thing to answer in the sense that if you want details for the question you need to ask the detailed version of the question but then overall speaking the law is teaching us still the holiness of god what is right in the sight of God versus what we think might be right in our sight, right? So it's still, uh, in the New Testament, uh, Paul handles this question or deals with this idea and says, what was the law? First of all, was it holy? He says, yes, it was holy. The law is holy. We are just not capable of keeping it because we are under sin. But then eventually he also says another in another place, then what was the purpose of the law? The law was like a tutor. Right? It was teaching us about God. It was giving us a revelation of who God is. It was teaching us about our sinfulness, how incapable of keeping God's law we are, how fallen we are. It still can do that for you. And that's why we still have the Old Testament and learn from it. But then a Christian is living by faith in Christ and we are given a greater life than that. We are given a greater obedience. We are given the righteousness of Christ to be able to live according to God's will and our lives by the power of the Spirit. So that's that's all I wanted to say.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, Let's now, oh, actually there's one more. Um, How do you tell a fellow brother or sister what they're doing is a sin without sounding too judgy, um, quote unquote? Also, if a brother or a sister is drifting away from the faith, from their faith, and you can constantly see them fall into the desires of their flesh or the temptation of their world, how do you exhort them back into the word in a loving way?
1: Uh, Earlier, uh, we were mentioning a scripture, and um, that's basically what I'm going to read because I feel like it kind of covers the topic really well. Um, It says this. "...but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith..." And this is Jude uh, 20, it's only got one chapter. "...building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, that leads to eternal life. And, it says, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh, right? So it's got an element of mercy towards one another, love for one another, not just sitting by, not like being like Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, we are. If we're in Christ, my brother and my sister, what they're going through, we gotta feel it. We gotta have compassion towards it. We gotta help out as much as we can. But then again, it tells us, what we're capable of, we're not capable of snatching somebody out of something that we ourselves will be tempted by. So it tells us to be careful, but then it also tells us in Christ we have the power to turn someone from what they're going through or a lifestyle of sin, in compassion, snatching them out of the fire, in compassion, helping them out, in compassion, sharing the word of God with them, right, or helping out in in what they're going through. So we have this complex uh, reality of it. So. Yeah. I would. Um, uh, I, sorry, no, what he said, like, I feel like it also applies to like, evangelism when you're telling others about the word of God in the same way. Like, when you, like, you were saying about how, like, when you see someone, like, we have to have mercy for them, and at the same time, like, we shouldn't try and, like, tell them, like, knowing that because the stuff that they're being tempted by, we can be tempted by it as well. So we should be, like, merciful and kind of be a little bit understanding. You
0: know. Yeah. Yeah. So the answer is coming not only from here, but in, in the midst of us, too. And I don't, I don't mean it in a, in a joking way, but it's really a blessing to hear that, absolutely. Um, what I would add is really just practically what that looks like is to understand your own sinfulness and dealing with these things. Um, And Mm
1: -hmm.
0: not counting the sins of others. (sighs) Understanding, does that brother or sister really get the fact that what they're doing is sinful? Um, and, And I think this is more of a practical question because it says, without sounding too judgy or in a loving way, how does that actually work? Um, the best practical way to do it is by asking questions. Um, genuine questions, too. Not like, aha, caught you. But ask leading questions. Um, have you considered what you're doing? Whatever that thing is. Um, and I don't know. It doesn't give us any specification. Um, hey, how often are you reading your Bible? Because one of the questions is, how do you exhort them back into the Word in a loving way? This is a simple question. Is how does is your prayer life look like? What can I be praying for you about? What are you struggling with? Letting, letting them know that you are there to love them, and to pray for them, to support them, um, and not to judge them and not to call them out every time they make mistakes and they commit a sin. Um, and and if that is a fellow brother and a sister, which with which you ha- with whom you have a good relationship with, um, just simple conversations and questions is the way that you do you get to that answer that the Bible exhorts us to do so. Um, that would be the only thing I would add. Moving into the, the more theological questions, the first question that was asked that has a really uh, rich theological bent has to do with predestination, election, and free will. What are the differences, and what are the what are these differences in thought and theology? Primarily or secondary divisions to have are these primary or secondary divisions to have in the church? Um, we won't get. I'll tell you this up front. We won't get into the depth of each of those because this is such a loaded question. What we will do is, we will walk through these specific topics. Um, the next three weeks, I will be at the pulpit, filling, uh, filling in the pulpit from Psalm 32, and then it'll be Easter. And he'll preach an Easter, uh, Easter sermon. And the week after that, I promise you that we will have, um, we will walk through these three things predestination, election, and free will. What does the Bible teach about these things? And we'll walk through this from the pulpit, and we'll learn from God's word in depth. Um, but what would I, what I would answer is is it primary or secondary divisions? Um, it could be primary, for the most part. These are secondary divisions to where we don't have to to, to fight. To me, to to it's not a hill to die on um, in terms of that but we'll also see the details of that. But it could potentially be primary, um, and we'll see what the differences uh, in thought and theology are as we go. Uh, And for the sake of time also, that that was probably the the quickest quickfire question, (laughs) but it wasn't even in that category. Um, But for the sake of time, and knowing the different outlooks of what predestination is, um, what election is, does God predestine people to save and people whom he would punish? Uh, does God elect people whom he would save and whom he will punish? Um, and how strong is our free will? Do we have free will um, as human beings? Um, or is, is God's sovereignty more powerful than free will? Those are the areas of thoughts and theology. I'll just touch on that. Um, but we'll, we'll see that from God's word um, in a topical way in the next couple of weeks. Uh, the next one could also be seen as a quick fire. What should you do if you realize something has become an idol in your life, but it's not necessarily inherently a wrong, a bad desire? For example, success in career, marriage, etc. I would add ministry to that list. Um, what would you do when that thing comes? What should you do if you realize something has become an idol? You want to address that? I think, like, uh, I want to address the question
1: itself. Um, by definition, if something has become an idol, it's no longer good, whatever it is, right? Um, We, I, I even experience people characterizing Christ in the way they like him to be characterized, for example, right? That's making an idol out of Christ. That's not the true Christ that you're trying to look at. If, it's, if that's wrong, then everything else is wrong, right? Um, nothing else that God gives um, is God. Um, nothing else other than God is God for our lives. So that's basically idolatry is worshiping or being consumed by things that are not God, right? So by definition, I think that's the first thing I want to redefine. In the question is, if something has become an idol, it has lost its holy purpose. It has lost uh, its meaning or whatever. It cannot be labeled as good after that, right? But that being said, I think,
0: Manny, you can go with the question, I believe. Um, first of all if you realize something has become an idol the first thing you should do is to praise God that he has actually opened your eyes so that you can recognize there's an idol in your life that is not supposed to be there because the way that idolatry works um is it makes you believe that you are actually on the right path, that you are doing the right thing. Um, And therefore, to see something like a career or marriage or a desire to succeed in, in school or a desire to succeed in ministry, whatever, you can fill in the blank. The way that you see that is when God allows you to see that you are on the wrong path and you must first praise then that God has shown you, the light. Um, and the second one, and, and then the action that you take um, is the action that God commands the Israelites uh, by the providence of God in our reading plan. We are in Deuteronomy, um, I wanna say between 11 and 13. I was listening to it, I didn't read it, that's why I didn't catch it. That's why I like to read, not listen to the Bible. Um, God tells them, if you see an idol, High places, tear it down, and we see that happening over and over and over again in the narrative of First Kings, First Chronicles. That um, the prophets, this is what God commands them: when there's an idol, you go in to where the idol is, or you go up in that sense, and you tear it down and you burn it, and you don't look back at it. You take action. That's what is. Emphasizes. We don't necessarily have material idols that we bow down to, that we take, and we don't have altars that we build to them in a high place, like the Israelites did. But once you realize that success in career has become an idol, you abandon your success in career. That's not, say, that's not to say quit your job and don't do nothing and be an idol person. It's not what I'm saying. Don't hear me say that. But you fight against that which has become an idol by the power of the Spirit. Um, The flesh becomes an idol. The way we look becomes an idol. The way we present ourselves becomes an idol. So whatever it is, you must fight against it by the Spirit, and you must tear it down and ask God to take the place that... um, that he so deserves. That is what we see in the Bible over and over again in terms of idols. Um, If God's love is not self-seeking, but he does everything for his name's sake, how is his love not self-seeking? Uh, so I'm guessing this question is coming from First Corinthians thirteen, where we see love. One of the attributes of love is love does not seek its own. Um, but one of the questions, one of the thoughts that came up in my mind, um Where it says, if God's love is not self-seeking, how did you get to that conclusion? Where does it say in the Bible that God's love is not self-seeking? Verbatim. First and foremost. Right? Um, Now, there are illusions that that we can draw, conclusions we can get to from reading our Bible. That we can say, well, you know, it says love is not self-seeking. And God is love. And therefore, if A equals B and B equals C, therefore A equals C. So God's love is not self-seeking, right? I didn't. You guys didn't know that I knew math. That's the only formula that I remember, right? <laughs> um, so if if love is not self-seeking, or love does not seek its own, and God is love, therefore God is not self-seeking. This is where the I think the heart of the question is coming from. Um, but we also know that he does everything for his name's sake. That is in the Bible. That I am doing this for my for my name's sake. I am saving you. I'm giving you a new heart. Um, uh, Jesus died so that God can be glorified. We call Jesus. Lord, and every tongue will confess, and every knee shall bow for the glory of... Okay, so all of these things are pointing to God. So what we are, in essence, this question is implying is the wrong understanding, what I think is a wrong understanding of what it means to be self-seeking. We are taking our love and our nature and our fallenness of when we love somebody and that love becomes self-seeking, we... We corrupt it because we want to be seen. God can do that without being incorrupt because He is love. He is the definition of love to begin with. He is the creator of everything, and everything points back to Him to start off with. So, who else is God going to seek after? What's the alternative? Like we, could, we have an alternative. We can either seek our own love or we can seek God's love. Then if we say, well, God could seek the love for us, why? When we are so sinful and rebellious and constantly attacking God, which he bestows the love. Obviously, we sang about it earlier. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? He loves us that much. But you you walk it back far enough, God will always run into God, so to speak. God's love would always run into the nature of who God is. And therefore, God's love cannot be self-seeking in the way that our love can be self-seeking. Because I can show love to my brothers and my sisters so that I can seem to be like a loving person. Or I can manipulate the situation so that I can get you to do the things that I want you to do as a congregation. Or I can get you to give as much money as possible. This is where it becomes self-seeking, right? That's All of that is seen in the corruption. But God's love is seen once and for all in the way that He's given His most beloved, precious Son for the sake of simple people like you and I. That's not self-seeking at all. If it was self-seeking in a way that is corrupt, it is to destroy. Again, that wouldn't even be self-seeking. He would be right in doing so because He is the definition of love to begin with. He created everything. For his own purposes. So, there is a level of in this question. I'm not saying this question is sinful, um, or don't hear me condemn you. But there is a level of of, of elevating ourselves on par with with God um, to some degree to say, well, God tells us don't be loving in self-seeking way, but he is also does everything for his own same namesake. So we're not in the same we're not in the same boat. We are he is wholly transcendent, different, utterly. So um, to think of it that way might be helpful and that in that way. Do you wanna have anything to add?
1: I wanna so I'm literally gonna quote you a little bit. It's not gonna be Barbita. Um uh, This topic is very, like, I agree with 100% what Manny said. I don't need to add anything to it. But in the hope that, like, we all think differently, maybe for someone who thinks differently in the sense of just additional information might help some people. Um, We were talking about this the other time, and one of the things that was mentioned is God is not singular, right? Like, we are singular. Right? You, by definition, exist as one person. Me, myself, and I is what you can consider yourself to be, basically. Right, uh, God is not. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. By definition, God has lived eternity past without actually having any creatures, without actually having to glorify himself through creation. Right. So for God to be love in that period, just like Manny said, is a love between three persons it's not it's never going to be egotistic in any way not only because god is three but by by definition god is holy and good right but then when you consider that he is three in one uh you understand (laughs) um you understand that god's love is pure and perfect in that sense so is trying to understand, uh, agreeing with everything Manny has said. Um, There are so many things that we cannot, like, just like in the mathematical mathematical equation, where one plus one is always two, you cannot just add up stuff, or A equals to B kind of thing, you cannot just add up stuff and get to a conclusion about God. Um, And the last thing I want to say is, like, It's the same thing that we face when we think about asking the question, what does it mean for God to be righteous? Like, Righteousness for us is right standing with God. What's righteousness for God? Who does he right stand with? Does he have a bunch of rules that govern him, that are above him? No, that's not what it means. Righteousness means God behaves consistently according to his name, right? according to his holiness. He always does good, always, right? And he's keeping up with his own name. So it's what we face, just like Manny said earlier, when we contemplate what it is to be like God and for him to be anything, righteous, holy, loving, all these things. We recognize that God doesn't have a, another reference from which like he attains some kind of, Relative uh, nature, but rather God is God, and there is nothing before Him, and there is nothing He conforms to or submits under. Is basically what I wanted to say.
0: So I'm looking at the time, and I want us to get to some of the practical questions that you've answered, you've asked. Um, there are a couple that that we're going to skip on here um, in terms of sanctification, and um, What does that look like? Practically, sanctification looks like obedience real quickly. Um, And for those who might not live a full life like the criminal besides Jesus, you're not justified by... um, Here's the question, actually. I'm going to answer it anyways. Um, And for those who might not live a full life, for example, the criminal besides Jesus on the cross, does it matter that they did not get a chance to live a sanctified life on earth? Sanctification... In terms of that is not equal to justification. So in, t- in the grand scheme of salvation, when you are saved, you are saved from the from the punishment of sin at the time of your conversion. When God gives you a new heart, new lives, new life, and you are born again, you are now no longer under the condemnation of what Adam has plunged us in as. As a human race. Um, but as a result of that, this new birth requires a new life that you live every day. That's sanctification. What you'd live like is consistent with your new nature, but it doesn't give you your new nature. So, sanctification doesn't by itself. Just because you you avoided sin and you fought sin and you prayed and you came to Bible study and you came to, to church and you sang the songs louder loud, uh, loudly, those things are not the things that save you. Those things are a result of your new nature. So sanctification practically looks like obedience, but your obedience is not what saves you. It's the obedience of Jesus Christ that saves you. Because he has saved you, now you can obey. You have the ability to obey. Outside of Christ, you had no ability to obey. We had no chance to be obedient to God in a way that God desires. But now we have new life. We can obey God. And that's what practically sanctification looks like. So whether you lived a full life, whether you live 50 years after you've been saved, or you've lived literally minutes, <laughs> as an example given here, the criminal besides Jesus? And I, I I want to refer to you Alistair Begg's conclusion on the uh, on this topic. It's it's a clip on YouTube. Um, it's it's fascinating. He gives this very vivid image of this thief on the cross going to heaven and the angel coming and saying, Oh, okay, do you what what is your stance on justification by faith alone, or what is your what is your stance on the five solas? So what is your stance on women preaching, and what is your stance on this? And the guy is looking at the angel, and again, this is an illustration. The guy is looking at the angel. He's like, "What are you talking about?" Um, and the angel says, "Okay, uh, what about what about this tenant of the Christian faith?" He's like, "I don't know what you're talking about." So the angel gets frustrated, goes. Goes and gets his supervisor angel, and they come and ask him. He said, and then they finally get, get exhausted of asking these questions. He says, Why are you here then? And the answer that he gives is profound because the man in the middle cross said, I could. The man in the middle said, I could. Jesus told him, Tonight, surely you will be in paradise that is the only way that we can get saved and we can get granted access to eternal life so whether you live the life that is so now that's not to say once you are saved most of you in here are if not all of you um i don't want to be presumptuous but once you are saved then sanctification is inevitable, it comes naturally. When we were in our mother's womb, we couldn't breathe the air the way we do it. We breathe the air. We used the umbilical cord to get the oxygen that our body needs, right? But once you were born, once you're outside, once you're exposed to the outside world, you're expected to breathe to live, right? And you're expected to eat to live you didn't need to actually sit down at a table and pick it up and eat it and well that's in injera you see where my mind is okay this is a fork right and you didn't have to drink anything that was just done for you as you were in the mother's womb but once you are born if you don't eat if you don't breathe if you don't drink you will die That's what sanctification is. Again, this is another imperfect illustration of that to kind of give you what practically it looks like. And does it matter that they didn't get a chance to live a sanctified life on earth? Not really. Now, if a person claims to be saved but did not bear fruit according to the repentance, that is a viper. That's what John calls the, the Pharisees, right? That, that your faith should be in keeping with your repentance. Your fruit and your repentance, your faith and the fruit that you bear according to your faith should be consistent with one another or else you have been deceived or you've deceived yourself um, and therefore you weren't saved to begin with. So that's that. That's another nuance that's there. Um if real quickly again God is enough and fulfills all your needs but what is what if you don't feel it? I'm not sure what if you don't feel it like you don't feel his presence or you don't feel like he is enough um, I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 4 verse third, uh, 11 through 13 where Paul says um, now that I speak from want, for what I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live with an abundance. And any and all things I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering in need. Here's one that you guys know. I can do all things through Him, through Christ, who strengthens me. So whether you feel it, whether you don't, you trust in the promises of God. That's the short answer to that. Um, the circumstances, because this question is more or less like, I, am, I can only trust, I can only feel that God is enough and fulfills it when I'm in abundance. When I'm not in abundance, this is what the implication of the question is. right? Um, when I'm not feeling the abundance, that means that... God is not enough. You see the fallacy in that? Um, So whether it's not about the circumstances, it's not transactional, it's seek first the kingdom of God and his, his righteousness, does not have a conditional clause to it. Jesus doesn't say seek first kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added on to you if you're feeling my presence. There's no if at the end. That's it, that's, that's done. Seek first is seek first, no conditional clause. Mm-hmm. Um, so if he's enough, he's enough in all circumstances, whether you feel it or not. So just have faith and, and, and pray for grace for that. Practically coming, real quickly, um, there are questions of the same elk or the same kind of notion. Um, that address how do you deal with um, mental health as a Christian, uh, including and in that is like social anxiety, um, gender dysphoria, uh, same sex, same sex attraction. Um, how do you deal with those practically? Um, is the question, so I'll try to address those, and I'll ask Al to to address it, and I actually looked up the definition, I didn't copy and, and paste it, um, the definition of mental health, and I wanted to, to give you what mental health actually means, um, according to the What is mental health? Mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. And it affects how we think, feel, and act. This is from mentalhealth.gov. And the CDC has a very similar um, definition to that as well. So this is what is meant by mental health. It has everything to do With your emotion, psychological, and social well-being, which by nature are extremely fluid. Your emotions, just looking around this room, I see a bunch of emotions. There's an emotion of tiredness, that can be a psychological state as well. An emotion of excitement, an emotion of even, like he's laughing, so he's kind of joking and joy. Um, An emotion of boredom, those things are so, but you won't feel that in five minutes when we're done. Well, if we're done in five minutes, you won't be able to feel that. You will be feeling something else, and there's even actually a feeling of hunger for some of us that didn't have breakfast. So hurry up, Manny, so we can, we can get out of here and eat. Uh, note to self. So those things are so volatile, and they're so dependent on circumstances that I cannot give you, this is a long way of saying, I cannot give you a specific answer that would that would say, Here's how you deal with it. We'd have to deal with this case by case. I can give you a framework real quickly on how to think about these things. is, um, And I can give you a Christian answer because this is why it's, it's asking us, is by referring and getting to know your Bibles. And reading and studying these topics From your Bible, God has addressed your emotional needs. And I'm not saying your emotional needs don't matter. Jesus wept. He was happy. And the Bible commands us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. That means we have to fill those emotions with one another. So emotions matter. right? Your psychological well-being matters to God to the point where Jesus died for those things that we talked about as well, like gender dysphoria, which means a sense of unease that a person may have because of a perception of a mismatch. (laughs) It says, because of a mismatch between their biological sex and their gender identity, I want to insert a perception. This is what the person would perceive in their mind, that they're trapped in another in a body that doesn't match with what they're perceiving themselves to be in terms of gender. That's what gender dysphoria is. Um, Those are the bondages of, those are the results. First of all, all these things are a result of sin. That's not to condemn you, that's to give you hope. This is why the gospel is the only lasting and freeing solution to this. Christ as revealed in the Bible, is the only one. It's the result of sin. This is why we feel trapped in a different body. This is why we feel like we have an attraction. And here's another one. This is a really low-hanging fruit as we were talking. and I'm trying to talk fast so that we can be out of here as soon as possible. Um, These are the things that, in the Christian realm, in the church, we try to address it and we try to emphasize this level of sinfulness or this level of attraction as being something that that is, we take it out of context and we, we emphasize way too much on this and we undermine other areas. Um, and I'm addressing how do you all deal with your own thoughts of being attracted to the same sex? You address it the same way that you would address it with the opposite sex. If you're not married, you bring it to God and you submit to the Word of God, and you ask God for grace, and you ask God for mercy, and you ask God for His continued supply of His Spirit and power to deliver you from these thoughts. The same way that you would do it if you were doing it with the opposite sex. If you're a man, and, and if, you're, if you're a guy, and you're looking at women in a lustful way, you will address it the same way. God, deliver me. I want to be obedient to God's to your will and to your word. You will address it the same way. The, the formula is the same is what I'm getting at. But there is a sense whereby we emphasize this because of the culture around us and what a culture we are raised in and the Christian faith and it's like, you will address it about your own thoughts about being angry with one another, which is equal to, death, to, uh, to murder or with lying. One to tell, being a habitual liar. How do you get delivered from that? You will address it in that same way by being obedient. Um, I'm reminded as I'm talking, um, I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul talks about the weapons of our warfare. Even though we, we, we are in the flesh, even though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But they are divinely strong to tear down strongholds, is what Paul says. And how do we do that? We bring every thought captive. So we take a, th- a thought, and you take a captive, like a prisoner. Like, ha! Huh, I see you thought. I'm gonna take you, and I'm gonna make you some. I make to Christ. What does Christ think about this issue? What does the Bible teaches me? I'm going to make you submit to that. And it's a, it's a battle between the ears. It's and it's a spiritual battle. And it's done in in the thought realm. That's why it's mental health, right? Uh, the question is framed So I would address it from, again, I did not address it as close to comprehensive as possible. This is a case-by-case issue. If you have fallen for that sin, there's mercy for you. That's what you don't hear. The grace of God, where sin abounds, there abounds grace even more. And love covers the multitude of sins. That's not a license to sin. That is to say, if you are thinking that, there is grace for you. If you are struggling with that. God still loves you and delivers you. Paul gives a list of sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and homosexuality and, and what we consider to be transgenderism. is in that list. So is murder. So is lying. So is um, idolatry and adultery. So, and you know what, what fascinates me about that verse? He says, Such were some of you, which implies that they no longer are. Which implies that God's power to save you can deliver you from that lifestyle to not live in that lifestyle anymore. So there's hope in the gospel in that. This is how we deal with it, by getting to know the God of the Bible in the gospel and relying on it. Um, Khalif, you wanna add that? And then there's one more that I want to address.
1: Uh, I just wanna say one thing. I think when this question or when this topic is raised, there is one thing that we by default assume. Science tells us this or that is what, what, why, what by default we assume. And we have grown in a generation where we think scripture and science kind of are divorced from one another. Go back in history and read for yourself. The universities came out of the monasteries, the church, right? It's just science being completely lost right now. That's why it's against religion. The scripture does not have a problem of being put into science, being investigated, because it's reality. There's no problem with it. Um, One thing I just want to say is the assumption, the preloaded idea is gender is different from biology, basically. And I don't like, like Mani said, this is a very specific issue, and we have to address it one person at a time, one issue at a time. I'm not trying to address it overall. But one thing we should always know, that scripture assumes, knows, teaches, biology is the same as your gender. Your gender is deeper, deeper than your biology, but God created male and female in his image. That what, that's what makes the human race, basically. At birth you can tell a person is a male or a female and that's it right with that reality is how we're talking to you we're not saying like we hold the same ideas as what science calls itself right now who cares science has gone mad we're not gonna go mad with it but we're saying as a Christian, biblically speaking, this is not even confusing at all. This is one of those questions where God's word, even the, the Old Testament law, has clear instructions on how this is an abomination at every level. If you're wearing the other sex's clothing, that's an abomination. If you are attracted to the like the wrong sex and you're practicing that, that's an abomination. In the New Testament, it comes and says, such were some of you as christians we don't continue in that path just like we don't continue in who we were before we came to christ in every area of our lives so for for the bible this is not a hot topic this is like a no-brainer uh this is not a confusing reality this is if we have gone mad as humans the animals will show you very clear to them (laughs) right If we've gone mad as grown-ups, babies will tell you the difference, right? Then it's very clear.
0: Yeah, Um, one last one, and I think this is really practical. Um, And we have skipped some questions, but we have gotten to the majority of your questions. Um, And if you need follow-up questions or more explanation, We'll, we'll be around um, today, and we'll be around as long as the Lord gives us grace. Um, we'll see each other. Um, but the last question is, is there anything wrong with mindfulness to meditate and focus on the Word of God? Or is it a bad practice regardless of the reason? I think this is a really important question because mindfulness is in your schools, and most of you are in school. Um, I know that it's in your schools because I have kids in school, and I have worked in the school. Um, and they talk about mindfulness. So I wanted to define mindfulness to you. This is, again, a definition taken from those. This is not my own definition. Mindfulness, by definition, is a type of meditation in which you focus on being intensely aware of what you're sensing and what you're feeling in the moment without interpretation or judgment. I want you to hear those... What you're sensing and feeling in the moment without interpretation or judgment. Now, let me ask whoever asked that question, or if you're thinking about it, let me ask you, let me try to answer the question with a question. Can you honestly say you can meditate and focus on the word of God without interpretation or judgment? The answer is no. No. There's going to be an interpretation which is going to pass a judgment on you one way or another. And therefore, you can either practice mindfulness the way it's, it's done, or you can meditate on God's word the way that God's word recommends and prescribes for us. There is a way to meditate on it. Blessed is the man, Psalm chapter 1, um, who meditates on the law of God, verse, verses 1 and 2, day and night. Joshua chapter 1 tells us that you must meditate on this book of the law so you won't depart from it so we are to meditate on God's word but when you naturally meditate on God's word you will have to engage to interpret it and to 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 to, to pass judgment it passes judgment on us or it passes judgment on our behavior, um, we judge ourselves, and God judges us through His Word. So there's going to be all of that involved, and it, it takes no regard of what you're sensing or what you're feeling in that moment, whether you're happy or it's not you-focused. As opposed to the practice of mindfulness, is always about what you're feeling, what you're what you're sensing in that moment and this has eternal it's not a momentary thing with God's word so these two things are mutually exclusive by definition i wanted to to discuss that so you can't use it even as a tool so it depends on what you feel what you mean by mindfulness if you mean mindfulness the way that mindfulness experts define it then no that's not right you should abandon it it's bad practice because these two things are mutually exclusive and God tells, again in Deuteronomy is what it, where he says, don't even bring anything of their pagan practices to, to, to synchronize it with my way of doing things, with my law. That is sin. You can't bring any worldly principles and try, no matter how effective they may seem, you can't apply it to god's law because it will corrupt it you can't bring anything unholy and mix it with the holy and expect it to be to remain holy the holy can bring itself to the unholy and take you into the holy and make you holy but you can't bring the unholy and mix it there um, so again the definition of mindfulness matters if you're meditating the way that God's word says, meditate on my word day and night, absolutely, you're obedient. But if you're meditating to focus on what you're sensing and feeling in that moment without interpretation or judgment, then you need to kick that to the curb. With that being said, I apologize for those um, who did not get their questions answered. We will continue to work to answer these questions um, more thoroughly um, as we go forward. I would say one more thing by by way of encouragement. This is the most encouraging thing for for me so far I've I've experienced, is to see the kind of questions that you've asked. it gives me an idea of the fruit that the Lord is bearing by the way that we are serving here. This is my kind of assessment, year-end assessment. To, to get questions from you that are engaging in this matter tells me that the Lord is at work in your heart. Um, tells me that we're not toiling in, va- in vain. Um, that our efforts are not going anywhere. That the Lord is at work. Um, both in us and in you. And it's the most encouraging thing uh, for you to have asked these questions. And we will continue to strive to, to have more of these kinds of sessions um, in the future. God bless you all. Let's pray and finish. Lord, we are so thankful that you have given us this time to discuss the things that are concerning our hearts so that we may address them in a way that is according to your will. Lord, we pray that your Spirit addresses and applies each question that was answered and in, uh, in a way that is edifying and building uh, and satisfying to each person's heart. The application of these things are dependent on your Spirit to our hearts. My questions are not and my answers are not inerrant, but your word is inerrant. And I, I pray that you lead us to depend more on your word and your grace and your spirit to give us insight to these questions. Help us grow in our Christ-likeness, in our life of sanctification, to those that, are, that have not come to a saving faith I pray that you will continue to draw their heart to you so that they may know who Christ is as their Lord and Savior in this moment. We honor you. We glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, uh, one, uh, sorry. where
1: are you guys, Uh So... Uh,